0: Season 3, Episode 13, The Justin Clark Transcript Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis about the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. I'm Scott Kuhn. In this episode, I'll mainly be reviewing the transcript of one of the key players in the Trump White House and campaign, Justin Clark. Clark is an attorney who served as the deputy campaign manager from July of 2020 onwards, and then moved to Trump's Save America PAC slush fund, working through his firm, Elections LLC. I've been reading as many transcripts as I can, and I want to thank everyone in the community who's been helping me with that task. More on that later. But first, as always, let's do the numbers. Sourced as always from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 969 individuals charged, an increase of 19 since the last tally. Nice. There have been a total of 417 indictments, up 8. 6 deceased, no change there. 2 dismissals, no change there either. 1 acquittal, same. 580 convictions, an increase of 29 since the last tally and 390 sentencings, an increase of 20 since the last tally. So that is a pretty solid uptick in convictions. And once again, sentencings and new charges are roughly keeping pace with one another. I'd like to do a short profile this time. Uh, One of the newer cases here is Austin Harris, who was arrested late last month. And he is actually Dr. Austin Harris, a physician anesthesiologist, actually, from Sherman Oaks, California, who runs a ketamine infusion clinic. I did not know that that was a thing. Apparently, it is a thing. It's not FDA approved. Uh, apparently, it is used for depression and some other things. Um, this could be another example of the sort of new age, crystals, crunchy people to MAGA pipeline uh, we've seen with some of these defendants, particularly out on the West Coast. Now, Dr. Harris was turned in by someone described in the statement as a, quote, former friend, who sent the FBI a Facebook post from January 6, 2021, which reads in part, quote, I want to be very clear. Those causing chaos in the Capitol building were not Trump supporters. They were Antifa, dressed up like Trump supporters. It is a false flag event to allow even more pressure of conservatives. End quote. So, this is really confusing, right? He's MAGA, he's in the Capitol, on video. As a matter of fact, there, there are shots that, you know, some sort of show him tussling with police, uh, even though he wasn't ultimately charged with AFO. He did have an AFO number, Uh, So, it's a little confusing here, but he just has the four standard parading defendant charges. Anyway, he apparently tried to render aid at one point to Ashley Babbitt, and yet, somehow, you know, the people who attacked the Capitol were Antifa. Well, I mean, by that logic, Ashley Babbitt is Antifa, right? He is Antifa. He was inside the Capitol. So, you know, he posted that on Facebook on January 6th. And yet again, it's just a clear example of of how quick they were uh, with this cover story. It was ready to go, right? No, it it wasn't us. Uh, It was Antifa. Never mind the fact that, again, if you're saying all the people in the Capitol, you know, the, quote, bad actors were Antifa, well, you should include yourself in that. So it's really a strange claim. So unlike most cases, there's nothing in the record, uh, the charging document, the statement of facts, that establishes when the first investigative contact was for Dr. Harris, uh, between him and the FBI. So, it's kind of hard to tell how long he's been in the pipeline. Now, given that he was identified via a social media post that he had made on January 6th, it kind of implies that he was someone who was identified relatively early on. I mean, that is the pattern. Most of the, the social media tips that came in, came in pretty quickly. Uh, in a lot of the other cases. So, it seems quite likely they've had his identity for some time. You know, why not charge him earlier? Again, one possible reason, he did have an AFO number. Uh, His AFO number was 317. And um, there are still pictures in, I haven't looked at any of his video, but there are still pictures in his statement of facts that show him kind of tussling with cops. So it could be that maybe they needed a more solid evidentiary basis uh to document an AFO and they just weren't finding something that was stand up in court or alternately, this could be a case where uh this is someone who they they've just undercharged um you know both of those things have ha- happened in the past uh nonetheless um you know again uh, it's pretty rock solid, right? I mean, the case, you know, they even in the Statement of Facts document that he has flown on statement of, on Spirit Airlines, and there's even like yellow Spirit Airlines luggage tags on the backpack that he wore when he was at the Capitol and inside the Capitol on January 6th. So hopefully, you know, maybe they'll charge him for, for ketamine uh, as well. Um, I'm not going to link to his website, but, you know, apparently he's had something like 7,000 patients. This is not something that is approved. Yes, it's an FDA-approved drug, but he is apparently uh, doing off-label prescribing for ketamine. I know it's California, uh, but nonetheless, that really seems like something the federal government might be interested in. Not the first time you've had medical people in this country handing out drugs for purposes that, you know, they weren't intended. So let's do a couple of quick news stories before I turn to the Justin Clark transcript. The first is that, as many of you are probably aware, the foreperson of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, one Emily Coors. Has been making something of a splash, a little bit of a media tour, uh, doing various appearances. She told the New York Times that the grand jury has recommended that there's a list of persons, quote, not a short list, who were involved in Trump's attack on electoral democracy in Georgia that was put forward, recommended for charges by the grand jury. And they claim that it's not rock and science, that the case is relatively clear cut, and that people won't be surprised by the names. On the list. Now, this has prompted various legal commentators to say that, you know, she's done something wrong. She's done disservice to prosecutors, makes their job harder. This kind of publicity uh, is bad. It makes it look like it's somehow partisan or unprofessional or inappropriate. My own personal response to that is that, you know, uh, you got one side that's making sure the whole process is secret and professional. And you've got another side that is just spreading and spewing nonstop propaganda and uh, absolute garbage every day, and, you know, to a, an adoring audience that is still lapping it up. Um, I mean, yes, maybe what she's done is ill advised from a legal point of view, but it's been over two years. It's understandable why an individual citizen, such as Emily Coors, might be a little frustrated at how long this process is taking. She's just one person. uh, But nonetheless, she's had better access to the evidence in the Georgia case than any of us have had. And if she wants to talk about it at this point, you know, why not, right? If the government really wants uh, to make sure that people aren't out there talking, then the obvious remedy is to issue charges. You don't want to jeopardize the case? Fine. Issue some charges. Arrest somebody. In other news, special counsel Jack Smith has issued two more subpoenas, this time to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And they join Mike Pence and Mark Meadows, and this elite, exclusive group of people uh, who've been receiving subpoenas from Mr. Smith recently. Now, they join everyone else uh, to whom Smith has issued a subpoena, and this includes state and local officials from New Georgia, New Mexico, Nevada, Michigan, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Also, Trump lawyers Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran, uh, mainly from the uh, stolen documents case. Of course, Bob was also in the Willard War Room, so January 6th overlap there. Former national security official Robert O'Brien. And senior advisor, Stephen Miller. So, I've been spending a lot of time with the transcripts lately. And this list of names tells me a few things. You know, yes, am I frustrated that Jack Smith, uh, Merrick Garland, haven't charged anyone? Sure. But we've gotten to the point that it appears everything is on the table. Um, Personally, I would be disappointed if they just brought the documents case and nothing else because that is something where, you know, they could minimize it, they could try to play it off as an honest mistake, unless they find evidence that he's been selling it to Russia or China or something like that. um, That is something that might not put him in that much legal jeopardy. I mean, there is the odd argument that he declassified them psionically. Uh, Whereas a lot of stuff related to January 6th and election interference and obstruction of justice, particularly... Seems legally perilous for him. And it looks like with this set of subpoenas, it's all on the table. This set of actors are involved in everything that's outlined in the report the big lie, the pressure campaign on state and local officials, um, the classified documents, of course, the, the, the fake electors scheme, and the big ripoff fraud scheme. I mean, this is a pretty good list of people that you might use if you wanted to get at all of that. A lot of the people who are farther down on the food chain have already given very useful testimony to the committee, and it's worth noting that some of the investigators from the committee are among the 20 lawyers who are now working for Jack Smith. Um, I'll talk about one of those witnesses later on the episode, of course. Um, Again, you know, it's... Not an accidental selection on my part. I think it's a particularly interesting transcript. Um, worth noting that there's a difference between the congressional subpoena, uh, one issued by the committee, and one that's issued by special counsel. Jack Smith. There's an argument to be made about executive privilege when it comes to co-equal branches of government. There's a prerogative um, that, you know, Congress shouldn't be able to interfere with the executive in this way. Uh, it helps to protect uh, politicization, prevent politicization. Nonetheless, it's different, right? It's different when you've got Uh, the Department of Justice, and especially the person of a special counsel to be issuing these subpoenas. Those executive privilege arguments have been tested in court. They were tested during the Nixon administration. It's not going to fly. And this is particularly important in the case of Stephen Miller and Robert O'Brien. You review their transcripts and you see that both of them invoked executive privilege many times. So I realize that no one is going to say that the Department of Justice has been moving particularly swiftly at this point. A lot of people seem to be in love with Jack Smith. Uh, you know, he has, he has a lovely beard. Um, nonetheless, you know, he is doing the things that we would expect him to be doing if he really was moving up the chain of command. So, um, you know, I don't know how long, quite frankly... The American people are going to hold out, right? I mean, the magas, the magat people—they're—they're, they're, you know, they never want to see charges, right? But for those of us who see the real threat to electoral democracy in America, um, you know, there is a sense in which why not public demonstrations? Why, you know, why don't we have folks uh, demonstrating publicly in cities all across America and at DOJ headquarters in Washington? Uh, to, to bring this about. So far, very little public pressure has been brought to bear, and unfortunately, we do not have a lot of time. Because the 90-day rule is in effect. Trump is a candidate for the presidency. So, it's a little under 250 days now, I believe, um, before the 90-day rule goes into effect. And we know that the 90-day rule is more sacrosanct than the Constitution itself. So, hopefully some action will happen with regard to charging people so that we don't have the death of electoral democracy in America. Finally, in a bold move, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has given 44,000 hours of video from January 6th to Fox News' Tucker Carlson. What he's done is actually illegal. Something is either public or it's not. If the Speaker wants to give an exclusive interview to someone, he can do that. But if he's going to give government materials out, it has to be either made public or not. He can't give it to one news outlet and not give it to others. And this isn't, this isn't a close thing, right? I expect, expect lawsuits imminently on this issue because it's patently absurd. He's taking government property and basically giving it to Fox News. Uh, and they're going to do two things. They're going to uh, turn it into propaganda, and they're going to monetize it. So they're going to selectively edit the video uh, in the style of James O'Keefe or Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, it's going to be intentionally misleading. We all know that. Who knows? I mean, for them, they might even use deep fakes and that kind of thing, right? It's Fox. They've established in court that they are an entertainment company. They are not bound to tell the truth. They believe that, you know, they've said it. That no one can take us seriously, therefore, we're not accountable for anything that we say. So out of all the news outlets, you know, maybe OAN, or, you know, Steve Bannon's War Room, or InfoWars. I mean, those are probably the only three that I could think of, uh, you know, that would be worse, right? Uh, give it to Murder the Media or the Boogaloo Boys. Uh, it's just really absurd. Now... A little bit of criticism here for the Democrats, right? Because the one thing they could have done to prevent this would have been to release all the material prior to the end of the 117th Congress. They lost a the majority, and so in the House at least, so therefore, 118th Congress, this was entirely foreseeable. Now, again, what they're doing is actually illegal, but you kind of know that uh, this majority is going to do something bad. So, why not release it? This At this point, it's been two years. There's never anything exculpatory, and it's not going to endanger prosecutions. You're not going to find people who've been prosecuted and convicted, and suddenly there, there's going to be evidence that somehow exonerates them. That's not a thing that is going to happen. Um, moreover, failure to release this material, it may have prevented the identification of various people. So, there, There's a sense in which, um, you know, this is the worst of all possible worlds. The best thing would be to make it public for everyone. Uh, the worst thing is to give it over to far-right propagandists, to have them selectively edit it, uh, put up, like, little, you know, 10-second videos on TikTok where they show some grandma who made it inside the Capitol and was peaceful without showing the Proud Boys breaking windows, breaking in, the fighting on the Lower West Terrace, that kind of thing. Uh, You're not going to see Edward Lang hitting cops with a baseball bat in the edited video from Fox News. So, again, I don't think this will stand. It's not, you know, it's not legal, right? It's either public or it's not public. You don't get to give an exclusive to Fox News as if you're just giving an interview. These are not the same thing. And for that reason, I would like to issue a public call Uh, 44,000 hours, that's a little over four and a half years if you just watch it end to end. If you're going to release it to Fox News, at least have them just air it continuously. No editing, air all the video continuously on Fox News for four and a half years. I would rather see this material aired on Fox News rather than their regular programming continuously for four and a half years. Four and a half years of not having Fox News would actually probably be one of the best things we could do to protect democracy in America. All right, so let's move on to the main theme of the episode. Um, as always, there's links in the show notes to all the other stories um, that I've featured in the very quick news segment at the head of the show. So, the transcript of Justin Clark. First, uh, let's give a little background, because Justin Clark is not one of the household names. As a matter of fact, you might get him con- uh, confused with Jeff Clark, Right. Um, so he's a a, a little bit of a a different character. We're used to a lot of these different figures, like, so you've got uh, old crazy people, right? You've got Mike Flynn, you've got Sidney Powell, uh, you've got Patrick Byrne. You've got young crazy people, right? You've got your Garrett Ziegler's, right? Who I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that he's a big Nick Fuentes fan. Um, and yet in the form of Justin Clark, you've got someone who isn't, Really, in either of those categories. Uh, in fact, he's, he's a, a remarkably competent kind of figure. And for the Trump administration, especially for someone who made it through four years of the Trump administration, uh, relatively team normal. So uh, a lot of those people, he would appoint them, and they washed out, right? Right. You know, um, I mean they there's there's a reason why you, you had such huge turnover. Uh, they tried to hire people early on, uh, you know, even the generals, right? They did just they washed out. They couldn't hack the crazy that was going on inside the Trump administration. And so many of them wound up resigning. Justin Clark, you can't say that about about him. As a matter of fact, you had him increasing positions of responsibility ultimately becoming the deputy campaign director of the Trump campaign in 2020. So he held a variety of jobs in the Trump White House. Uh, He was the director of intergovernmental affairs. He was the director of the Office of Public Liaison. Uh, He oversaw the handling of Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation. Um, And in 2020, prior to his appointment, Uh, to the deputy uh, position at the Trump campaign. Uh, He served on the President's Commission for White House Fellowships, which I see is kind of a transitional role. They knew they were going to transfer this guy to the campaign, so kind of a a placeholder position for him, so he doesn't have to go get a job in the private sector for a while. And, of course, again, deputy campaign manager, you've got a wide portfolio of, of responsibilities. And unlike some people in this administration, right, I mean, uh, you know, you've got like Peter Navarro, you know, doing manufacturing, supposedly, right? I mean, he's actually qualified reasonably well to do the job that he was uh, assigned to in the Trump campaign, particularly. Now, I really got interested in Clark, uh, again, because i'm looking at the relationships in the transcripts between the various attorneys i'm particularly interested in stefan passantino you'll remember him he is the attorney who was fired by catches cassie hutchinson when he essentially allegedly encouraged her to do obstruction of congress Uh, he told her to have memory problems he told her that They would take care of her in various ways if she testified the the right way. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And Passantino is a close associate of Mr. Clark. As a matter of fact, the two of them together, along with Bill Stepien, founded a firm called Elections LLC, which is technically a law firm, but which provides a wider variety of elections-related services. Than that um they 've worked for Herschel Walker, they of course have uh, their biggest client of course has been trump there's not even an election going on, and currently they're getting anywhere from forty two thousand to sixty thousand dollars a month still from various trump related entities um i 'll put a link to the FEC disbursements disclosures in the show notes. So, he's got an LLC, and we know that LLCs, uh, basically, many of these witnesses, uh, shockingly, have LLCs that have also been receiving payments from Trump-related entities, and Elections LLC is number one on that list. They're the ones who are getting the most money from Save America Pack. and, uh, you know, I suppose, again, like, Herschel Walker, right, Uh, Trump's former running back back when he was an AFL owner. Uh, You know, that was basically his operation, his failed candidate in Georgia. Of course, where they do their business, Elections, LLC. Interestingly, he's not a far-right figure. As I mentioned before, he came to the Trump campaign in 2016 straight from Chris Christie's campaign. So this is not someone who... He has this long record of supporting Pat Buchanan. Um, this isn't a, a Clea Mitchell. This isn't a, a Sidney Powell. Uh, this isn't a Ed Martin from the uh, Phil Shoffley Eagles. Um, this is someone who I basically read as an opportunist. Uh, he saw the Trump campaign, and then the Trump White House, and then the subsequent Trump campaign as an opportunity to, to just really cash in. And one of the disturbing things it, that becomes clear when you read the transcripts is that, unlike a lot of the people in Trump world, he's actually competent. Now I have a different understanding of some parts of election law. He's an attorney; I'm not. Nonetheless, there are some things that he says in the transcript that are are just flat out wrong. They're they're just not true, and his interpretation uh, is utterly baseless, idiosyncratic, is not related in any way. Uh, to the way election law is understood in this country, and that 's his specialty, but nonetheless, I mean there are other things that in the transcripts he goes into detail i 'm not going to bore you with this part, but uh, about the different uh electoral systems in different states i mean he knows how to run a nationwide campaign um and so you know this is someone who in that sense is a little bit more dangerous right um you know he's this isn't so this is someone like who's yeah, you know, basically, team normal, right? Or, but has just decided, you know what? I'm going to cash in, um, and that, in my opinion, uh, makes him kind of worse. Now, the interview began at ten twenty three a.m. and ended at five forty nine p.m. on Tuesday, May the seventeenth. 2022. So, that's like seven hours, right? Even with a lunch break, that's a seven-hour interview. And that's, you know, that's kind of a tough slog. Uh, It's a 200-page transcript, um, but they seem to want to avoid going to two different dates. He was represented by one uh, Ross Garber, uh, who has his, his own firm. So, he's a partner. Um. One of the neat things about transcripts, and I encourage everyone to read as many of these as you possibly can, um, they're not like an essay. You don't know, it, when you start on the title page, you know, there's the boilerplate in the beginning, the standard warnings, uh, the description of whether or not it's a subpoena or a voluntary interview, uh, the introduction of attorneys, things like that. But you don't know what themes they're going to touch on. Uh, the interviewers know they are well prepped and prepared in advance, and presumably the attorneys for the witnesses, particularly the ones who have something to hide, have also prepped their clients. Nonetheless, there is no guarantee that there's going to be a 100% matchup between what the witness is prepped for and the things that the uh, the committee investigators are going to look into. I've seen this multiple times. So if you do take the time to read the, the transcripts, you should know one thing. The best stuff is always at the end. They always reserve the material that is really going to put the witness on a hot seat at the very end. I don't know anything about fancy lawyer in, in Philadelphia, uh, but it seems like a smart way to do it, right? If you're grilling someone for seven hours, they are going to be uh, at their their most pliable toward the end of the interview. Now, in this particular interview... Uh, again, there's no thesis statement, but there's three main themes I'd like to uh, go into before I do my long textual exegesis and summary of the document. You know, Again, a process that you're used to where I read long documents so that you don't have to. That being said, if you have the time and you want to read a 200-page transcript, there is a link to it in the show notes. The first one is declaring victory. Um, there's a lot of time that's spent in the transcript on Trump's decision to just... Declare victory on election night before uh, the race is really called. And what went into that. And during that section, uh, Clark is just, he has a lot of memory problems. Doesn't know. Uh, I don't remember this. He says that an awful lot. So my suspicion is, he does know. I mean, in point of fact, there weren't that many people there in the White House. Uh, he was present with them and there were lots of people who would want to talk to him as uh, one of the deputy campaign managers. He said he was busy counting votes. I'm not sure I buy all that. I think he was probably talking to a lot of people who were deeply involved in this decision uh, for Trump to just go ahead and declare victory. Um, the committee wanted to know a lot about that, and he really, I think, in in one in, in this instance, was pretty effective in not saying a lot about it. Although, he looks like someone who may have some kind of cognitive decline. Um, he doesn't seem like someone who has particularly good recall. The next issue is the issue of fake electors. And here, Justin Clark is on Team Normal. Um, there's a change in strategy and in, in November, and basically, Clark steps back from his role as uh, an attorney who's working for the Trump campaign. Uh, Instead, he he moves on to other responsibilities within the Trump campaign in the post-election period. And other attorneys come in, led by, of course, Rudy Giuliani. Um, And Clark is, at at this point, at pains, I think, to distinguish himself from uh, the Rudy Giuliani school. Because there's stuff in the evidentiary material that makes it pretty clear he thought that the fake electors plot was a bad idea. And interestingly, in this section, his recall is excellent. He's got names and dates and figures. They show him emails, and he knows exactly what's happening. He has a good recall of the, the, what happened in these meetings and these emails. Uh, so it shows, you know, that, um, I mean, again, election night, uh, on an election that, you know, is is highly cont. I mean, just, like, you would remember what you were doing that evening. He didn't. Uh, but in the post-election period, he knows a lot about the fake election scheme, and he gives them what I think is, is a lot of very useful information. The third theme that they have is the theme that he wasn't ready for. And this was the big rip-off. He was not prepped for these questions, and it really shows. And once again... You know, it starts off, it's like, okay, well, we've had this this theme where I was able to be cooperative, I was given good information, it doesn't make me personally look bad. And then in the next uh, theme that they move into, suddenly, and you can see it, you can read it happen over a series of about ten pages, where he goes from realizing that he's in actual legal jeopardy. And that, moreover, he either is going to have to say he doesn't remember Or he's going to have to answer truthfully and incriminate himself in some way, I believe, in any event. Um, So, that is is kind of fun to watch. And that begins roughly the last 25 pages of the transcripts. So, if you're reading other transcripts, and I hardly encourage you to do that, if you've got the the kind of time it takes to read 18,000 pages of transcripts, um, I would recommend prioritizing them. Read the ones from the Trump White House and the Trump campaign first. Because those are the people I believe who are actually the targets. RNC would be next. Um, if you have a particular interest as I do in uh, the uh, deployment of the DC National Guard, uh, read the ones from the Pentagon and uh, the DC National Guard. Uh, so those are, that's my own personal triage in that order. Now I have uploaded all of them to my personal computer, um, there's, uh, I believe, offhand, 263 witnesses. Um, that's a lot. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, at this point, you know, as you're going through, like a lot of the rioters, uh, they're just sort of normies, and the committee's interviewing them to establish that, yes, they thought Donald Trump asked them to attack the Capitol. Uh, personally, I feel like I'm familiar with those stories. I don't need to read those. Um, on the other hand, if you read the report at this point, and hopefully, If you don't have a copy, uh, it's available for free online. I like to have the hard uh, copy edition, although I wish it had an index, so I've got that, and I've also got uh, the free edition uh, online, which is keyword searchable. Um, There's a lot of stuff in the transcripts that's just not in there. And, you know, as I I've given a lot of fault to this and I, I've been relatively unhappy. I know why the committee released the transcripts as they did in the way that they did. They didn't want to tip their hand and they wanted to just give everything over to the Department of Justice at the same time. Um nonetheless, uh I, I feel like there's been a process whereby the media when these things were dribbled out and they were there would be like four on one day and then four on another day, and then uh, you know, uh, just kind of like this mad rush to the end. Um, they we get treated as news for like a 24-hour news cycle and then dropped, right? So I can say Justin Clark to you today, and he doesn't mean anything. Um, nonetheless, I'm kind of highlighting him because I think he's a key witness for a, a few reasons. Uh, he's at the center of everything. He's at the, the whole, you know, he's in the campaign. He's in the White House. He's involved in the fake electric scheme. He's vo- involved in the big lie, the big ripoff. He knows about all of that, and he's not a Garrett Ziegler. He's not a Peter Navarro. He's not a Steve Bannon. This is the kind of guy where, if they actually apply the pressure, I think it'll tell the truth. So, um, you know, Jack Smith, if you're listening, hit this guy up with a subpoena because he knows more. As I'm going to try to make clear, I don't. I think that he remembers more than uh, is evident from his interview. So again, how am I prioritizing these transcripts? What am what am I reading and why? Um, Clark is is interesting for a number of reasons, as I've mentioned. Um, but also, again, there there's this interlocking network of people uh, who work in the legal field, right? And it comes up over and over again. Um, you know, for example, you've got McGonagall, the FBI counterintelligence guy in New York, who got arrested. He was represented by Bracewell LLC, which used to be uh, called uh, Bracewell and Giuliani, back when Giuliani could still practice law. Um, and he's represented by uh, his attorney, Seth Ducharme, at Bracewell. Uh, similarly, you've got uh, Eric Hirschman, uh, right, one of the heroes of January 6th, uh, supposedly. Nonetheless, uh, he's, his firm is Casowitz, Benson, and Torres. Uh, which is representing a number of different individuals, uh, some of whom, you know, different levels of placement, right? But Jared and Ivanka among them. Um, And you notice these different patterns of witness testimony. Uh, So, for example, Caslitz, Benson, and Torres uh, tend to be somewhat more cooperative uh, than some of the other witnesses. Um, Stefan Positino has patterns. Uh, He doesn't like, for example, for his witnesses to invoke the Fifth Amendment or to um, lie on the stand, right? Uh, Or to invoke any kind of privilege, like executive privilege. Uh, His clients tend to just be very forgetful in certain parts of their transcripts. Um, And so studying them through this network of attorneys is an interesting way to go because uh, they represent real human relationships, right? So um, you have Justin Clark, Stefan Pasatino, and Bill Stepien, um working at different points in time together. So they work for this firm, uh, Elections LLC, that they founded together. They've also founded a firm together called National Public Affairs uh, that is also apparently another way that they're dipping into the pot. I'm not actually sure what kind of business they actually do. Both Clark and Stepien used to work for Chris Christie. And at his hearing, uh, Bill Stepien was represented by one Kevin Marino. And Marino was paid $67,000 from the Save America pack. And you probably won't remember this. Uh, I I wouldn't have, except for the fact that I looked it up. Marino has represented Stepien before, back when he was an aide to Chris Christie... Bill Stepien was represented by Marino during the Bridgegate affair. Um, So, you have Alex Cannon also doing work for Elections LLC. And, of course, as I believe I mentioned earlier, um, Justin Clark and Stefan Pasatino were both employed by Michael Best and Friedrich and Michael Best and Friedrich uh, one of the senior partners, the president and chief strategist at least, is someone named Reince Priebus, former head of the RNC, and also, for a while, I think it was in 2017, the um, the chief of staff in the Trump White House for about, I don't know, seven or eight Scaramucci's. In his testimony, interestingly, Clark is represented by Ross Garber, now, Garber, as far as I can tell, isn't specifically one of these Trump world guys. He does, uh, he has a show on CNN, and he actually specializes in government investigations. Um, so, you know, they actually, st- some of these people are basically kind of like in house, right? Like, Stefan pa- Pasatino is like an in house Trump attorney. But for the attorneys' attorneys, they're hiring people who specialize in this area of law. Uh, Ross Garber. Nonetheless, Garber, of course, was paid for all this? Who paid uh, for Garber's work in uh, with regard to his clients? Of course, it was the Save America pack. And by the way, I don't know if you've used the FEC website, but if you it's easily Googleable. If you search for FEC and disbursements, the website will come up and you can put in uh, whatever you want. Um, you know, you're looking for disbursements from the Make America Great Again Pack. And uh, you'll see that uh, the Garber Group, uh, Ross Garber's firm, received $110,000 from April to August of 2022, which of course is a time period of consideration uh, when their clients were being get getting tets, uh, subpoenas from the January 6th Committee. So there's this network of attorneys, and you know, MAGA stands for Make Attorneys Get Attorneys. And it's fascinating to, to look at how this network relates uh, to itself. Of course, that's a pattern. That is something that Trump himself learned from Roy Cohn, his mentor in crime, that if you're going to do crime, involve your attorneys, right? Michael Cohen can speak to this. Because then, suddenly, things become privileged. Uh, once you've got attorney-client privilege, it is a great way to prevent yourself from being held accountable for anything, and it's a technique that Trump has used for forever. So he may not be a smart man. he may not do a lot of have a lot of book learning, but he does have a kind of raw animal cunning, and this strategy has worked, and he has deployed it again with regard to January sixth now um again, if you want to sort of read along, I will occasionally read uh, some page numbers. There is a stable link to the transcript in the show notes, Uh, but if you just type in um, GovInfo and January uh, 6th transcripts, it should come right up in Google. Uh, And then there's a pull-down menu, and you can select whoever you like. Not organized in any particular way, by the way, which is one of the reasons why I felt like I had to I had the need to download all of these and organize them into different file folders on my computer so that I would know uh, which part of the story corresponds to which witnesses. Okay, so from the very beginning, in the Clark transcript, first sign of trouble is that he can't remember his handle on Instagram, which is a little bit of a clue. Uh, This phrase, well, I can't remember, it, it happens quite a bit. Um... So, there's some discussion of how Clark was getting paid for the work that he was doing for the campaign. Um, so, technically, you could say he works for the PAC, uh, in that the PAC is who is paying him, but he was paid by the LLC, again, Elections LLC, the one he started with Bill Stepien and Stefan Passantino. Um And, by the way, he's a little fuzzy on this, um, but he is sure that he did get paid. Quote, I'm a partner at Michael Best and Friedrich, a law firm in D.C. I'm a partner with Elections LLC, which is a separate law firm that does political compliance work mostly. Mostly. And then I am a partner at National Public Affairs, which does public affairs work and political campaign work on the consulting side, not the legal side. Question. Is this the company that you run with Bill Stepien? Answer, yes. And, of course, again, also Stefan Passantino. Quote, the other founder of It With Me, partner who runs it with me, is Stefan Passantino, and then Alex Cannon works with us there, and Nathan Groth is an associate-level attorney there. Um, if you're looking into these things, there is no transcript for Groff, uh, but it is noteworthy. That he mentions his name in this connection. Groth is yet another attorney at Ryan's previous firm, Michael Best and Friedrich, who's also done other work for Trump in the campaign. Uh, so it's a little surprising actually they didn't talk to him. I don't I'm not sure why. Maybe they talked to him off the record, maybe they, they got something from him uh that way. Uh that would that be something. That would be nice to to know. Um, He also worked in the past for both the Republican National Committee and uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. So again, this interconnected uh, network of attorneys, some of them from Trump World, some of them from Chris Christie, some of them from the RNC, a lot of them passing through the, the same small number of law firms. With regard to how Clark got paid, quote, and at all times, would your pay have come been through Elections LLC for those roles? Answer, I think so. There were probably a couple of months where I got paid directly from them at the beginning, before Elections LLC was set up. I think it was set up in March of 2019. So I would have gotten paid. I just don't remember. I probably got paid directly from them. And they ask if the FEC records line up with his actual transition from the campaign to the pack. Um, quote, it's hard to say. I mean, it probably lines up pretty closely, but it's hard to say specifically. I don't remember a bright, clear line on that. End quote. New quote, I don't remember where I was getting paid from at the time, whether it was from Donald J. Trump for President Inc. or Save America, but to answer your question, ballpark, it's pretty darn close. In in other words, the relationship between what they show on the SEC, uh, sorry, the FEC database, uh, the disbursements page, and uh, the actual dates where he was again shifting roles between the PAC and the campaign, et cetera, and so forth. And by the way, of course, this is someone whose job it is to do elections compliance, right? So a lot of these questions are things that um, you know are. Confusing and confounding to laymen. Um, for someone like Justin Clark, has to deal with FEC stuff all the time and compliance. After and all, again, that's what elections LLC does: uh, is compliance. And yet, of course, he's he's uh, hazy and fuzzy on all that. So he knew that you know he had a job as a campaign lawyer uh, during this period. Um, which is, you know, again, the period leading up to, to the election, through the election, uh, and also somewhat in the post-election period as well. Interestingly, they ask him, uh, who were you given legal advice to? And he's, he's kind of fuzzy on that. Question. Okay. And who would the representatives of the campaign be, in kind of practical terms, that you would be providing legal advice to? Answer. Well... There really wasn't, uh, it's hard to say, okay? I don't remember, and I don't mean that as not, I don't know what the org chart said, but there was a lot of people involved in the campaign, even before the election, but particularly after, that needed to know or purported to sign off on things or didn't. So, there was kind of just a group, and it's hard to remember if anybody said, Okay, you know, there wasn't like one decider that said we're going to do this, let's go." Inquo. So, again, the, the 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 org chart is a little fuzzy, right? And this is again someone whose job it is to look at things like compliance, and he doesn't even know his own org chart uh, from the campaign or the lines between the White House and the campaign and the pack, because spoiler alert, those lines and relationships were interlocking. the guardrails, the boundaries simply were not practiced during this point in time, and we know that it's how Trump world works. They also asked specifically about Mike Pence, which is interesting. why why? hmm? Was he also providing legal advice? to the Vice President at that time. Of course, Pence had his own legal advice. Uh, People, I think, who in the end gave him better advice um, than whatever it was that uh, Justin Clark was doing. Question. During the time period from November 3rd through the 15th of November approximately, how often did you interact with Vice President Pence? Answer. I can't remember. Not as frequently as with the President, but I can't remember. Okay. What about after the 15th through January 6th? Did you have interactions with Vice President Pence? Answer I don't remember, but I don't think I did. End quote. So the reason why there's that cutoff point is that um, Trump's campaign lawyers, there was a switch, right? The the folks who had been representing Trump uh, decided you know what? All these things, these these fake electors, um, they're shady. Uh, and also, I think Clark himself also, well, he. I don't think, he also pulled away at this time. So Clark himself is kind of a, a general part of an exodus uh, of attorneys uh, who had been representing uh, Trump in various capacities, although Clark doesn't go all the way out the door, right? So he's still there, he's still in Trump world, uh, he's getting paid and he's not severing those ties. Quote, Focusing on the first part of what you just said, why did they stop representing the president? Answer, I don't remember specifically, and I can only speculate, and I don't want to do that. But they, I think the change in strategy was part of that. End quote. So he also can't recall whether or not he spoke to anyone in these firms regarding this change in strategy, right? Because this is the point where basically... Many of his lawyers, Trump's lawyers, say, you know what, we don't want to do any of this stuff. And so Trump hands everything over to people like, well, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Question. For clarification, I'm not asking for the content of any of those communications, but just the existence of them, Mr. Clark. Did you have any interaction with outside counsel about the change in strategy? Answer. I don't remember specifically, but I may have. I just don't remember specifically. Question. Okay, if you're thinking of them, are there any outside counsel that you do remember having interactions with? Answer. Again, not off the top of my head, I don't remember. End quote. Um, So, they they keep asking a lot of questions in this regard. For example, they ask him specifically, did you give legal advice to Mark Meadows? Um, And... He says, no, I, I didn't I don't remember if I gave, you know, he doesn't say, no, I didn't. He says, oh, I don't remember if I was giving legal advice to, to, to Mark Meadows. Answer, all of the aforementioned people, it could have been me and Matt Morgan, the president, quite frankly, it could have been meetings with them, right? So he's covering himself. He's like, well, I, I talked to, I just talked to everybody. So let's just say I, I, I talked to everybody. Uh, and then there, his, his attorney steps in and Mr. Ross Garber says, quote, to be clear, He's saying he doesn't remember any such interaction. Mr. Clark. Yeah, I don't remember any specific interaction with him. Meadows again. Uh, Must be uh, very clear, um, but I may have. um, He may have been present, is my point. And Garber steps in yet again to to reiterate, right? And and this is curious, right? How does he know what um, his client does or doesn't remember? I mean, yes, his client just said he didn't remember. But he's his attorney is very specific on what um, Justin Clark doesn't remember. Quote, Again, I think we're talking about a legal issue now. So there's a particular meeting that you want to talk about, we can talk about it. We're both talking about a legal issue and this hypothetical example which he can't remember. End quote the hypothetical example being you know, a conversation that have had with Mark Meadows or others. So, in other words, he wants to... You know, not only does he not want to talk about legal issues, which are privileged communications, um, but he also doesn't want to talk about whether or not he actually spoke about legal issues with people. Uh, again, I don't know that uh, attorney client privilege protects you if you, you know, from the mere existence of a conversation about given legal issues. He, he's kind of trying to have it both ways. You know, I can't remember if I was giving legal advice, but if I was giving legal advice, that is uh, protected. So, the investigators keep trying, they're trying, and they're failing to elicit response regarding a meeting that they definitely know has happened. Question. Do you remember any meetings with the president where you were there in your capacity as a lawyer for the campaign where Mr. Meadows was also present? Answer. I don't remember that. Question. Okay. And what about any text messages? Answer. Just also to be really clear, he, referring to Meadows, was often in and out of meetings with people. So again, I just don't remember. End quote. So the investigators are really patient about trying to to get this information from Clark, and Clark's not budging, is this very firm position, it's, it's odd, right, that he doesn't remember a thing. And this would have been a very important period, This would have, these would have been very important meetings, Um, but he acts like he's got some kind of degenerative neurological disorder. Question. And to Mr. Garber's point, hopefully, when we go through this, we'll be able to jog your memory about specific meetings and who was there and that will be a little bit more helpful, I think, to remember the various participants." So, again, they're trying to set up uh, what was said, but they can't even get Justin Clark to say that he was there. He doesn't remember where he was or what he was saying, who he was talking to at any point in this process. They ask him specifically, did you talk to any members of Congress? What do you think he says? He doesn't remember that. Question. Then the other thing that may come up, (coughs) excuse me, then the other thing that may come up, I don't think it's going to be a big factor, but did you have communications with other elected officials, in particular, members of Congress during the post-election time period? Answer. I'm sure I did, but I just don't remember. I don't remember specifically who or when. Okay. So that is really odd. Again, if you or I talk to a member of Congress, uh, presumably during this post-election period, one might remember it, especially when your job involves these important questions where, you know, he he might know, right? And, you know, there's no notes. You know, this is someone who's given all this legal advice, not taking any notes. He doesn't have a daily calendar. He doesn't have a schedule, doesn't have a diary or journal, uh, because again, he doesn't want to keep a record of who he's talking to. Uh, and about what, during this entire period of time. And he can't even throw out a name of someone he may have uh, spoken with uh, at all in passing. On election night, with regard to, again, that first part of the story, right, Uh, Trump's decision to declare victory on election night, when the outcome was still very much in doubt, he also has some serious problems remembering details. Question. Okay. Were there any lawyers associated with Mr. Giuliani present there? Answer, uh, associates of Mr. Giuliani? Question, yes. Answer, I don't remember. Okay. Um, so, you know, again, really odd. There's an attorney. There's either, There are other attorneys there. Um, he's about to be supplanted by Rudy Giuliani, who's got his own attorneys. Um, but, you know, Clark can't even remember uh, who that might be. So, at this point, the investigator uh, reminds them. Question. Are you familiar with Boris Epstein? Answer. Yes. Question. Was Boris there with Mayor Giuliani that evening? Again, on election night. Answer. I don't know if he was with Mayor Giuliani that evening or not. I think he was there. Yeah. Question. Do you remember him being in the residence when you were there? Answer. I don't remember him being there. That doesn't mean he wasn't, but I don't remember him being there. In quote. So, again, the strategy that's devised is Rudy, right? This is all Rudy. Rudy Giuliani is telling Trump not to concede. And we know this from, from other um, testimony. But, you know, this is something that Justin Clark, apparently, too busy counting votes to remember, And again, this is shocking. This is a shocking violation of the norms with regard to the transfer of power and what we call in political science loser's consent, right? Trump, you know, I mean, maybe he might not want to concede that night, but he does the opposite of that. Instead of saying, let them count all the votes, he just says, I won. The Bannon strategy, right? The the Roger Stone strategy. The Rudy Giuliani strategy. We won. Fuck you. And, uh, So at this point, again, what they're they're curious about is that very element. The denial of what we would call loser's consent. And Justin Clark doesn't remember any details. Uh, He can't remember, for example, if anyone urged Trump to say that he had won the election. Question. Do you remember who, if anyone, advocated for the president to say that he had won the election? Answer. I don't remember specifically. Okay did you later come to learn who had if anyone answer no i don't remember period who if anybody advocated that the president that the president say those things which again just wow okay you got rudy giuliani making a scene on election night we've had other testimony about you know rudy drinking a lot and getting crazy and having you know this this wild th- i mean the only thing missing is borat and yet um You know, Clark, he just wasn't, I mean, just evidently not paying attention to his surroundings. And not only that, he doesn't even remember his own personal emotional response to, again, Trump's flagrant violation of Democratic norms and denying the election outcome on uh, election night. Again, Trump could have just laid it open, said, let's wait for the votes to be counted. He doesn't. He says, we won. Question. Quote, what was your reaction to hearing the President give those remarks on live television? Answer. I don't remember my reaction at the time to those. Again, I was in a position of counting votes, figuring out whether we won this or not, and making sure we had the right resources and states to deal with any issues that came up post-election, just reconfirming or confirming that we had people on the ground, talking to political operatives on the ground and places to see what the count was and what the vote was. I don't recall any reaction I had to his remarks. The problem with that, of course, is if you are the guy who's talking to people on the ground about issues related to the counting of votes, if the president goes on national television and says that he won while that process is ongoing, that's exactly relevant to what you're trying to do. You're exactly the person who at least should be aware or have some reaction to the fact that this event, unprecedented in American political history practically, is is happening on live television, and on your watch as a campaign official. They also asked whether or not Trump uh, talked to, sorry, Clark talked to anyone at the Trump White House regarding the claim of victory. And, of course, again, once again, you know, they asked several versions of the question. You guessed his response. Question. Okay, did you talk with any of them about the President's remarks, either while he was speaking or shortly thereafter? Answer, I don't remember. Again, not, no, I did not, right? That's interesting. It's always, I don't remember. Because he knows full well there's people everywhere. They see, you know, and that some of them will, are going to testify. Yeah, I talked to Justin Clark about this, and he said it, it was outrageous. Um, or he endorsed it, right? One or the other. I don't actually think that Clark was was necessarily down with this part of the plan. On the other hand, he's going to specifically say, no, no that, that, didn't, that didn't happen. Um... So I don't think it actually served his interest for for this uh, to, to happen on his watch. But, uh, you know, we'll never know his version, right? Unless Jack Smith gives him a subpoena. Hint, hint. Uh, somebody, again, this is someone who's very subpoena-worthy with regard to uh, the special counsel investigation. So, there's some back and forth on this issue, right? Back and forth about the hand count going on. And Mr. Giuliani and I, we've butted heads before. He said, he told the president that I was lying to them about that, which I wasn't, and I just kind of lost it on Rudy and got into a shouting match with him on the phone that day. He said, you're lying. I came back with, I'm not lying. Just read the statute in Georgia. Then we started yelling at each other and the president broke up the conversation and the meeting broke up. Question. What was Mr. Giuliani's response to your telling him that what you were saying was just reading the statute in Georgia. Answered. I don't remember. We were screaming at each other. Okay. Again, uh, you know, he doesn't remember lots of stuff, but he does remember the, this one detail. Uh, and somehow the volume uh, means that 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 he can't remember this. So, anyway, I his lack of memory regarding all these details at this point is pretty suspicious because. Again, you're in charge of a campaign, you're the guy in charge of counting the votes, and the president has just said, uh, no, I won, Um, and you know that this is actually a violation of democratic principles and what we do when we hold elections in this country, and you're okay with it, um, seemingly. Or maybe you're going to yell at Rudy Giuliani, but you're not going to resign, right? That's not what you're going to do. You're not going to go on television and say, what the president is doing is wrong, and I'm stepping down effectively immediately, no, you're going to continue to get like $60,000 a month from the Save America PAC up to the present day. Question. How did you learn that Mr. Giuliani would be taking over litigation for the campaign? Answer. The president called me and told me. Question. And what did he tell you? Mr. Garber. That would probably, that would be a, a privileged communication. Clark. Yeah, I'm not comfortable getting into that but I was informed by him that Mr. Giuliani would be taking over the campaign or taking over the litigation on the campaign. So what you know again what did Trump tell him? Did Trump tell him the, the fake elector scheme? Did Trump tell him that they were going to go ahead um and you know go ahead with the big lie? Did Trump tell them they were going to continue to fundraise off of all this to create a giant slush fund that would eventually go to pay Justin Clark's own legal bills? Well, we can't talk about that uh, because that's attorney-client privilege. Even the communication wherein Trump says you're no longer my attorney with regard to this matter Clark wants to have uh, be privileged. Okay. Question. And if you can, can you distill for us What was the substance of the disagreement between you and Mayor Giuliani? Answer. I mean, it was... The the disagreements were like I always viewed them as opposition in nature. If I had said that it was noon, he would have said it was midnight. There was a lot of that going on. That was my hot take on it, but substantively, you know... There's a process to challenge election results, and I never got the impression that Rudy's team was interested in following that process. Skipping ahead, there were also legal theories that I thought were fruitless. Dominion voting machines and software changes and, you know, Venezuela. I thought it was, regardless of the merits of it, which I didn't think were correct, the path of going down that way I just didn't think it was a good strategy because it wasn't something that was going to fundamentally change anything. End quote. So, they get perilously close, anyway, uh, to saying what the real strategy was. And the investigators give Justin Clark the, the opportunity to say and to acknowledge what the strategy was. They show him Exhibit 26. And while it's on the screen, the investigators say this. Quote, it's an email exchange, including uh, Jason Miller, Stepien, and Clark. There's an email exchange between Stephen Miller, sorry, Jason Miller, and Mr. Stepien. Let's see. There we go. So this is Mr. Stepien, who asks, sort of adds Mr. Miller into the chain email, and asks for his legal strategy. Mr. Miller responds at 3.50 p.m. on the 8th. My understanding of our Nevada strategy is to cause as much chaos as possible. Mr. Stepien then responds, If that's the Nevada play, then okay. But as for Pennsylvania, etc., no more for seasoning. End quote. Uh, Continuing on with the investigator's remarks. So the first thing I want to ask you about is just about the Nevada strategy. What did you understand Mr. Miller to mean by cause as much chaos as possible? Answer, I think he's talking about a calm strategy there in terms of chaos, but I don't recall specifically on what he was getting at there. Now, maybe he wants to interpret it that way. Um, Either he's deluded about what actually happened, or he's misleading the committee uh, in this instance, because um, we know what the strategy was. It was Bannon's strategy, right? These people basically crowdsourced the insurrection, and during the post-election period, their strategy was to cause chaos. So, you know, you've got Stepien saying, no more four-seasoning, right? But, you know, uh, maybe that's why Clark decides to relate that to the comms strategy. But it's more than just comms. They've got all these different things happening. They know they're going to lose in court. So their goal is to just fling enough stuff on the wall and hope some of it sticks. And that's true with regard to all the different legal strategies. And it's also true, ultimately, uh, with regard to, to January 6th itself. Um, that was the final outcome of this strategy to cause as much chaos as possible to give them the wiggle room to basically uh, try to force Congress ultimately literally by force to give Donald Trump another term. They then ask him about fake electors and um, he, he does a bit of a pivot. Quote, OK, so it's fair to assume from what you've told us that you are not involved in developing the strategy for this track. Answer, No. I wouldn't have been. I may have answered questions with respect to how the process works, my opinion on esoteric legal theories, you know, as one-off things, but I wouldn't have recommended that someone pursue this track. And I certainly wouldn't, I certainly, I wouldn't have recommended someone pursue this track if I was asked. End quote. So again, at this point in time, they are trying to get state legislatures to nullify the election results in states that uh, Trump had lost, narrowly. I right? suppose it's so-called swing states um, and that swang ultimately to Biden. And they're, you know, he, again, he's saying, well, I, I wasn't involved in that. And, I mean, the record does kind of you know, it bears that out, right? There, there. Rudy Giuliani is driving the campaign legal strategy at this point. But again, uh, Justin Clark's not resisting this very much. He just, I think maybe he realizes he's got some legal issues here if he decides to go ahead with it. And he opts to, to not take part and claims that he didn't tell anyone, um, you know, give them advice on how to do it because he thought it was a bad idea. So, in this section, again, this is a section where, if you read it, he, he's a lot more specific. It, his memory gets a lot better because it serves his agenda of, of saying that I was on Team Normal during this time. They asked him about whipping votes in state legislatures uh, in order to try to get them to overturn elections. Question. Okay. Did you tell Mr. Roman to have these efforts seized? Excuse me. Again, this was... Uh, Mike Roman, who was in charge of whipping the votes to try to get state legislatures to throw out election results. Answer. I don't remember having a specific conversation with him about these efforts, so I don't know if I told him that or not. Answer. uh, Sorry, question. Okay. So again, you know, not resisting very hard, right? Now he knows that this will be unprecedented. This was takes back to the election of eighteen seventy six, right? So you know, unprecedented since Reconstruction, uh, and the whole reason we have the Electoral Count Act in the first place. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, um, he's not driving the the the, the car anymore, um, and he's not trying to grab a hold of the wheel. "Quote: I wasn't in a position to make that call at that point to tell someone to stop doing something." it wasn't my role on the campaign anymore. Uh, you know, he wasn't following orders because he wasn't uh, in the chain of command anymore. Uh, he wasn't resisting it because not, not his call anymore. All right, so then, and we're up to page 105 right now. Yes, I know, I'm, I'm uh, moving as quickly as I can. Um, there's a pressure campaign to decertify the election results at the state level, and they're looking at all these different people. This is refers to exhibit forty-seven quote, and it does say you know it has a sort of call to action, call and email these two legislative leaders in Georgia, House Speaker David Ralston, Majority Leader of the Senate, of the Senate Mike Dugan, demand they call a special session immediately. Then it has bullet points. Here's the evidence of a false statement. Demand and vote these on decertification with a final vote. You're either with President Trump or you're against him. End quote, right? So what they've done is they've sent out this message to all their supporters and saying, you know, in different states, you need to call these specific people to get them to overturn the election results. And, I mean, that part of it worked, right? They got MAGA people to do that. They weren't able to get any states to decertify, but they tried, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. Question. Sorry, so you felt this was a red flag moment with respect to the potential implication of state lobbying laws. Is that right? Answer. Correct. Potentially. I didn't know. I just wanted everyone to be aware that they should look into this before sending something like this out. End quote. So Justin Clark's problem here isn't that this was a tremendous violation of democratic norms in terms of, uh, the peaceful transfer of power, his problem was that he was, the campaign was, in effect, lobbying state and local officials to do things in violation of campaign spending laws uh, in order to do that, right? They would have to set up a political action committee uh, that was poised to take action at the state level rather than doing this from the national organization. Um, so, that is another possible area of legal action, by the way. It's true that they absolutely did that. It didn't work, but it was still, uh, I think Clark is right here, it was still potentially a violation of the campaign finance laws with regard to uh, both the state and the federal level. Now, there is a section where uh, you're familiar with Kenneth Chasebro. I'm, I'm never sure how to pronounce it. Uh, I always want to say Cheesebro. In any event, when he first encounters Cheesebro's uh, election strategy, his elector strategy, he thinks it might be a good idea. This is on page 110. Quote, we were coming up on the date when electors would vote, and I received from, I either got a phone call or an email from Jim Troopas with a memo attached from a guy named Ken Cheesebro. And the memo outlined a concern that they had with respect to electors and the electoral voting, being that if this case was still pending on the day of the electors' vote and the Trump electors, who had been duly nominated, did not vote, the case would be mooted because we wouldn't have electors' votes to count. Uh, Skipping ahead, he he says that the, the whole point of the Fake electors' idea, as it was presented to him originally, was, quote, make sure there were contingent electors in the event that, you know, an election challenge that was real was proceeding, was mooted because they failed to vote. There was precedent for it, and it seemed right to me. That's on page uh, 118. Skipping ahead, but at some point, it morphed into something I didn't agree with, which was doing like this everywhere and doing it not necessarily duly duly nominated electors, uh, then I kind of tapped out, and I think Matt did too. And I think Josh did too. Because it turned into something that wasn't the original intention of that email or that memo. So, in other words, he claims this was a valid legal strategy um, that was limited to one state, but then they started appointing fake electors in other states as well. Um, And, you know, I don't know at what point he knows that the the fake electoral certificates are going to get drawn up and eventually sent to the National Archives. Um, But, you know, uh, again... He should have known at this point, from the moment that Rudy Giuliani took over, uh, that none of these strategies uh, were were good. Right? These were not good ideas, and he should have resisted this idea because you know exactly, or he ought to have known exactly where it was going. It wound up being a fraud. It wound up with fraudulent documents being uh, filed in with the federal government to uh, give fake electoral votes to someone who had actually lost the election. So, you know, again, it's consistent with what Jason Miller had told him in, in the, the chain email, right? The plan was to uh, foment chaos. Not not the chain email, but uh, the email chain. The plan was to foment chaos. And it was working. The monkeys were driving the train at this point. Um, and he's just sitting back collecting his checks and, uh, you know, He said, yeah, that's a good idea. Go ahead, uh, appoint some contingent electors, who ultimately, of course, would become fake electors with fake electoral certificates. And so it was basically when um, Clark realizes that there's a connection here, that part of the strategy is to get states to invalidate their electors, and replace them with contingent electors. In other words, it's not merely pending the outcome of some legal case. This is simply a strategy to nullify elections through state legislatures. And he, it's when, according, at least this is what he testifies to, uh, he realizes these two efforts are connected, and that is where he decides that uh, they've gone too far. Uh, question quote and once you did make the connection between these two efforts what was your thought your reaction answer I don't really remember what my reaction was but I'm sure it was a little bit of an aha moment but yeah I don't remember interesting here that they doesn't remember right because it's pretty clear that his reaction was they were plotting they were plotting to overthrow democracy And for some reason, uh, Justin Clark's not willing to say that. Question. Okay. And make any sense because you have a problem with the sort of process, a legal issue with the process, or answer, it, it wasn't a legal process. It was more like we were having contingent electors vote if there's no contingency whereby their votes are going to be counted. Like, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? Question, what was the response you received? Answer, I don't know if that there was a response. So, again, he does, you know, uh, say, well, um, this this is wrong. Why are we doing this with these fake electors? Doesn't get a response back. Giuliani is basically not returning his phone calls. And um, that's it. He doesn't, doesn't follow up. Uh, doesn't go to the press and say, they're doing this thing with these fake electors. They're pr- trying to steal the election. They probably, you know, are going to submit fake election certificates um, and try to, you know, claim that this is the legitimate result. None of that. But, you know, he says, well, this is a problem, and then just, again, kind of drops it. There's one part in this, you know, where he's still trying to present himself as being on Team Normal, um, but he, he says something that I think is, is really odd for an elections lawyer, someone who specializes in compliance issues. Um, is just not accurate, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Did the fact that each of the 50 states have sort sort of certified and submitted a certificate of ascertainment determining the winner of that state, you know, vote by the safe harbor deadline, did that factor into your assessment of whether it was appropriate to have contingent electors vote? Answer, No. I view the safe harbor date as a little bit of a false deadline. I don't think it matters as much as some people do. So I wouldn't have factored that into my thinking at all on that." End quote. Now, again, some people no, actually everybody, uh, 99% of people who know anything about how uh, presidential elections work know that the safe harbor deadline is in effect determinative Uh, with regard to your appeals on these procedural questions and your challenges via the court system. And it's never brought up, right? But Bush v. Gore, even though it was, you know, it was such a bad decision that they knew it was a bad decision, they didn't want to be obliged to follow it, uh, especially, I think, if it applied to Republicans. Um, They decided, you know, at the time it was non Precedential, right? They declared it a non-presidential decision, which of course is utter garbage. The, the whole point of having a Supreme Court is that their decisions are in fact precedential. They guide lower courts and ought to ultimately guide the court itself. So really saying a decision is non-presidential is a kind of way of giving yourself a loophole to do whatever you want. Nonetheless, Bush v. Gore, one of the things it did, and people don't mention often enough, is it actually ratified at the highest level the safe harbor deadline. One of the things that the Bush v. Gore decision did was to ratify the safe harbor deadline. And people forget this, but the decision was actually issued on December twelfth, 2020, which was the safe harbor deadline. So at this point in the process, uh, past the safe harbor deadline, neither the Supreme Court nor any other court is going to actually rule in such a way as to overturn the election results at all, period. It's there in the Electoral Count Act. It's been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court and Bush v. Gore. And yet, according to Justin Clark, you know, it doesn't matter as as much as some people do, but some people, including the majority on the court that authored Bush v. Gore, um, he quote wouldn't have factored at all in, in his thinking. That is is an area where again, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't understand his opinion in this regard. Quite frankly, uh, he's just wrong to to believe that safe safe harbor deadline doesn't apply. And the fact that I, I you know I don't he's not telling them this right is part of the problem part of his responsibility as an attorney in this instance ought to have been we need to follow the law and by the way, none of these court decisions are, are going to matter they're not going to overturn the election after the safe harbor deadline all right so also um, again related to the fake elector issue. Um, Justin Clark, who's trying to put himself on Team Normal, gives Mark Meadows the contact information for the fake electors. Question. I think you did refer to earlier getting requests about contact information. Do you remember specifically Mr. Meadows reaching out to you to ask for contact information of electors? Answer. I don't remember that, actually. I don't. Question. Do you know why Mr. Meadows would have been involved with electors Answer, I don't. I know he was very involved in a lot of things at the end, but I don't know why he was involved with electors specifically. End quote. Well, of course, he was trying to overturn the election. Um, if so, yeah, that's why he wanted the contact information for these electors. So, he did know, by the way, Clark did know that Meadows was involved with the plans for electors to meet, and he admits this on pages uh, 125 through 126. Clark also claims that he had no knowledge of Cleta Mitchell's work in Georgia, and he does claim that he knew that Boris Epstein was working with Giuliani, but only came to realize uh, the extent of his involvement with the fake electors scheme in subsequent press reporting. Um, At least, by the way, unlike some witnesses, he's, he's admitting that he has read press reporting on these questions and issues with which he was intimately involved at this point in time. Some people, they don't remember anything. It's curious, though, here that Clark remembers things that he's read in the press, uh, but not things that actually happened about, like, why Mark Meadows is involved with getting contact information for fake electors. He claims that, in all of this, uh, the reason why he didn't do anything, the reason why he didn't... uh, you know, act upon his affirmative duty to act in preserving the law as an officer of the court, as a member of the campaign, and former member of the administration, was that he was powerless. Quote, again, it was an ever-dwindling group that would listen to me, but it would have included Matt Morgan. I'm sure it included Josh Finley. End quote. So he didn't do anything because nobody was listening to him. Well, if no one inside the campaign is listening to you, no of the attorneys are listening to you, there are places you could go, right? There's the Department of Justice. There's the media. And, of course, he didn't do any of that. He also has uh, more memory issues. Question. We received testimony indicating that White House counsel, the White House Counsel's Office, either Mr. Cipollone or Mr. Philbin, individually or together, did not believe that there was a legal basis for the meeting of the Trump-Pence electors as occurred on December 14th. Is that consistent with your conversations with them? Answer. Well, I don't remember talking to them about this, but it's consistent with my understanding of their abilities as lawyers. And if I did talk to them about that, we would have shared the same opinion. I don't remember having that conversation. Again, a remarkable thing not to remember. Question. Mr. Clark, just rounding out our discussion about this idea of alternate or contingent electors, Did you speak with Mr. John Eastman about this topic? Answer, I don't remember speaking with him about this. Okay, we've seen some communications between you and Mr. Eastman in early December. Do you remember what the context was for speaking with him then? Answer, I don't. I need to see the communications. End quote. So as we move forward in the timeline, uh, he makes some other strange claims. Uh, he says he was unfamiliar with Ali Alexander. Maybe he wasn't. Uh, maybe he doesn't follow that. Maybe he only follows election laws and things. But, again, he was a major figure in the, the Trump movement. I don't know why he was unfamiliar with him. Um, but he says that he did know about the Stop uh Steal organization in the context of the November 14th rally. So, you know, it's an odd thing for him to say he doesn't know. Um... Maybe he knew him at the time and forgot him. I don't know. He, he has uh, severe memory issues. He also claims that he and Matt Morgan extricated themselves, his word, from the Trump, after the Trump tweets out, that Rudy Giuliani was in charge of election litigation. That's on page 134-135. Um, although that's not exactly what happened, uh, as he makes clear in, in subsequent testimony. But nonetheless, after Giuliani is involved... He's just not involved in any of these questions, um, which I think is his own way of trying to get himself off the hook for things that are happening. All right, so moving on from there, and again, that was the area in which he's the most cooperative, to the subject of the big ripoff. And again, I've done an earlier episode on this, but this is the part of the story where the big lie gets monetized, and uh, they put out the bat signal to Trump's many uh, small and big-dollar donors to say, we're going to contest this election in the court system. We need your help. Uh, we're going to uh, create an election fund uh, to contest the election. Um, you know, you notice, right, Save America Pack, all that money for a recount, right, right? So that is, you know, and then they wind up creating a slush fund that is used for all kinds of things, Um, and including paying attorney fees for people like Justin Clark, but not really for election-related litigation. What I find curious about this is that Clark seems rather unprepared for this, and yet Garber knows it's coming. Quote, uh, we spoke with your attorney about this. I'm not necessarily... I'm not asking you about questions about privileged communications that you've had with your clients. What I'm trying to get at is the non-privileged aspect of who was paying for the election-related litigation. So to the extent that there were buckets for that, we're going to ask you, to the best as you can remember, if you can explain that to us." End quote. So again, why this matters, this is the whole rebuild the wall issue if you raise money for one thing and then you spend it on something else, that is basically wire fraud. That's what Bannon was en route to being convicted for uh before Trump pardoned him. People have been convicted in the We Build the Wall case, and this is uh directly analogous. And Justin Clark stepped aside from things like the fake electors scheme, even though he's giving Mark Meadows elector addresses, which Doesn't seem like stepping aside to me. Um, But he's also, uh, at this point, in charge of many important aspects of the campaign to include things like uh, raising money. So, now, he's going to try to pin this all on other people, right? The people directly involved with T-Magic and the RNC and Gary Coby. But he appears to realize, in the space of about 10 pages, just what his exposure is with regard to this question. And to my mind, he seems rather unprepared for this. So it's kind of interesting. Um, again, this is one of those charges, I think, that the media, potential charges for people in the Trump campaign and the, at the RNC, um, that is kind of flying below the radar. It's relegated to an appendix, appendix 3, in the final report. And yet, this is a thing people have been convicted of, And it's a case that is pretty clear. And it's $250 million fraud perpetrated uh, on Trump donors. Question. But if I told you, or if you found out, that there was actually nobody verifying the accuracy or truth of content of those emails regarding what they were warranting to the recipients, would that actually surprise you? Answer. I guess I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say, because if those people were on a content approval chain, I assume there would be some kind of clearance. End quote. Well, actually, if you read the report, uh, Appendix 3, you'll find that that uh, approval chain, you know, was pretty much non-existent. Um, There, you know, there were lawyers signing off on things, um, but there uh, there was no there there. There was no, you know, I mean, if you're in charge of fact checking Donald Trump and then you're using the uh his uh his points, his talking points as the basis for fundraising appeals and you're having him sign it, you know, ultimately, arguably Donald Trump would be responsible. But so is everyone in that chain that as we see was basically acting as a rubber stamp. There was no fact checking, and no one was at any pains to make sure that money for the uh, election defense fund was actually being used on election defense. Instead, again, it becomes the slush fund, the Save America PAC. Now, during this period, uh, according to Clark, his own words, uh, Jared Kushner and he were attached at the hip. There was a a 75-25 fundraising split off of this entire big ripoff operation between the Trump campaign, getting 75%, and the RNC, getting 25%. And uh, Justin Clark testifies he has no idea what how this fundraising split was arrived at, but that's what was in place. Question. This is now December 23rd, over about a month and a half after the election. What would people need to be donating weekly as opposed to monthly if the election was over? So again, this is related to the, the big ripoff. And there are people who, who are donating weekly, and month they were calling their credit card companies after the weekly charges, recurrent weekly charges, had been made. And so at some point, uh at this point in December, they decide, okay, we're not gonna allow people the weekly option, we're only going to do the monthly option. Uh and they don't go into it, but there, there's some question, right? Where do people realize? That they were signing up for a recurring uh, donation? Did they realize that was a weekly recurring donation rather than a monthly recurring donation? At any point, for some reason, you know, this these chargebacks totaled $25 million. Uh, sorry, $2.5 million at, during that period. Alright. So investigators then asked Clark about the recount budget. And again, why is that important? There are these line items in the FEC disclosures for disbursements that show recount when, in fact, the money was being used for other purposes. Question. What is still being recounted? I think the most recent expense was $600,000 in March to a company called 2M Document Management Imaging. And to the extent, I don't know if you're still involved in this, but if you are, what is still being recount legal in March of 2022 in a 2020 election? Mr. Garver, Clark's attorney. Uh, See, that might be, I think we're getting into substantively privileged things. It's not, right? This, This isn't a privileged question at all. You either are doing legal work or you're not. And they're they're asking you like are you still doing uh legal work on a recount? You're saying you're spending this money on a recount. Where's the recount? And Garber doesn't want Clark to say whether or not there's a recount because obviously it's 2 years later. There is no recount, but there's still all these charges. And of course 2M document imaging managing supposedly um those funds were being spent on managing the uh, privilege review for the documents that were being uh, sent to uh, the COVID investigation and the January 6th committee. Indeed, part of what it looks like the big ripoff is doing is setting up uh, the idea of a recount that doesn't actually exist uh, as the basis to set up a slush fund. That basically there's a permanent recount that's ongoing that can be continuously used for more fundraising appeals and so that they can spend it on whatever they like. Question. Well, I guess the predicate question would be if you need somebody continuously saying that an election is fraudulent in order to justify fraudulent, excuse me, in order to justify recount legal expenses for an election that happened two years ago. Answer, no. Question. If President Trump said tomorrow the election wasn't stolen, Biden was the duly elected president, you could continue spending recount legal expenses out of that account? Answer, you bet. The two are not related. Question. Okay, that's helpful to know. So basically, what he's admitting to here is that they're committing fraud. That they have fraudulently said that they are spending this money on recount stuff um, but it's not recount, and they have later you know amended that as a recount slash legal when in point of fact, their legal expenses now are related to congressional investigations and ongoing criminal investigations as opposed to uh election litigation, which again was the purported purpose of the fundraising all right, so it's around page hundred and seventy. And um, Clark is increasingly realizing that he has some possible legal liability with regard to all this. Um, around page 175, he's ignoring these bait-and-switch operations. Um, and he, there's an email exchange between him and Tim Murtaugh, where Murtaugh is alert to these issues and uh, you know, is, is aware that it's problematic. And there's a a series of email exchanges between Murtaugh and Clark. Murtaugh is fielding these questions from the press, saying, um, hey, it looks like you guys are spending this money on these recounts, but there are no recounts. And so he keeps asking Clark about this. And again, Clark isn't supposedly uh, working in certain areas, but he is obviously heavily involved in this. Uh, not as a, really as a lawyer, but as uh, someone who's a deputy campaign manager. So this was seemingly a, quote, sorry, question. This was seemingly a commonly asked question when people started noticing the change in the disclaimers. So if we scroll up to this dated November 30th, 2020, and Mr. Murtall writes, quote, still ignore? I will say to you a lot of the other emails are dated between November 11th and November 24th. So there are emails where he has been forwarding this to you and others saying, what is our position on this? And they have been taking the position to ignore. So just for context of why he's saying still ignore. Is that fair? Does that sound consistent with what you remember? Answer, sure, it does. And so they ask, well, who, who is it in fact who's responding? If you... Uh, quote, oh, it's you responding. So you respond to Mr. Murdaw, and you copy and loop in Dolman, Jason Miller, and, I believe, Bill Stepien, and you say, quote, I would still say no comment, but also I don't know if that number is correct and whether it's something we want to inform if the story is going to get written anyway. So he's saying he doesn't know if it's, you know, it's a a problem, Um, basically... Clark is saying, well, just stonewall the press. But guess what? You can't stonewall the FEC, right? You know, these are about elections violations. And he's saying, quote, we don't talk about what we spend on TV. And my position was that we don't need to talk about this. But this isn't about TV spending. This is about a question about expenses that are being budgeted for recounts that aren't actually happening. And it continues. And Murtaugh is aware of this. He says, quote, I side with no comment. He's going to write about the split, and if we say stuff about legal expenses, it will serve to highlight the argument that the fundraising pitch is misleading, end quote. So Clark is, is being brought to his attention by Murtaugh that there's an issue with the fundraising pitch being misleading. And of course, ultimately, the apex of the Tianic and all this is Donald Trump. So they asked Justin Clark directly, quote, Do you remember having conversations with the former president about how you would describe the issues of Save America fundraising? Answer, I don't know. End quote. So again, it's not even I don't remember, it's just I don't know. Right? So, you know, did he have conversations with with Trump about this? You know, again, very, very fuzzy memory on all these matters but later they are able to elicit, quote, I don't remember having any conversations with the former president about this issue, end quote. And here's the special, uh, specific language that the committee, uh, the investigators, try to bring to Clark's attention. And it's from this email exchange with Murtaugh, who's having to field all these questions and is basically told by Clark to Stonewall, quote, There are some campaign finance folks who say this is a bait-and-switch, given that the priority on this allocation is for the leadership pack, end quote. And Clark's lack of action is brought to his attention by the investigators. Murtaugh is harassing him. Basically, at this point, there's more and more emails saying, the press is on this, and the press is on this. And what he's not saying is that we are in serious legal jeopardy Uh, for campaign finance violations, we don't get a handle on it, you know, and Justin Clark isn't getting a handle on it. So, uh, this is Murtaugh, quote, I'm wondering, oh, sorry, this is uh, an email that Murtaugh has received from a journalist that he has forwarded to Justin Clark, who, again, has told him, just ignore these inquiries, just ignore these inquiries. Quote, I'm wondering, Experts who I have spoken to say that President Trump can't spend money out of his PAC on the recounts or other post-election legal proceedings. This is a spent question, but the last bullet point says, quote, some are saying it's misleading to raise money for a committee marked on the website as an election defense fund if it's going to a leadership PAC. Uh, Back to the investigator, away from the direct quote. And if you scroll up, Mr. Murtaugh again forwards this to you and says, still ignoring? question mark And you wrote back, do we care? On November 11th. I guess my question to you is, why wouldn't you care at this point? Let me phrase it this way. When you say, do we care? What did you mean there? And here, Clark's answer, I think, uh, really obfuscates the issue. I probably meant, and I don't remember the specific interaction, but I probably meant talking to Tim, like, do you care if we don't get back to this particular reporter? Press people have relationships with reporters, and I wanted to make sure, see if he needed to get an answer or not. I frankly don't think that the question deserved an answer. I think her understanding of what the pack was, that we were being formed, was incorrect, and what it could do. But I think I was literally just asking, like, do we care if we get back to this person? End quote. And I think that that is not true. I think that this is actually a compliance issue. This is an FEC issue. And um, Clark just doesn't think it's a problem. He just doesn't think it's a problem. And it's being brought to his attention by communications guy that this is a problem, and yet Clark's official position with regard to do we need to talk to reporters about this is, no, no, right? Uh, he, I don't think he sees it as a legal question. I don't think he sees this as a problem with the FEC, and I don't think he sees this as a, as a problem with regard to the press. But guess what? It's a problem in all of those domains. And at this point, I mean, it really appears that Clark has... Abdicated his responsibility and he admits it. So, if you recall the, the, the material on the big ripoff and T Magic, he was talking to Alex Cannon at this point in time with regard to all this information. This is part of his answer to a question. Quote In terms of fund approval and fundraising emails, not approvals, but in terms of people raising concerns about it, Alex Cannon at one point came into my office and said something to the effect, and, and he was just doing legal reviews. It was like, I can't believe we're sending this stuff out, or something to that effect. Uh, And by the way, Alex Cannon didn't have to sign off on it if he had a problem with it. Um, And I said, I told him he should go talk to Gary and speak to him about it, and I told him, you don't need to do legal reviews on these anymore. End quote. So, this is one attorney telling another attorney that it's all fine. That we don't need to do legal reviews and make sure that we're not running a bait-and-switch operation. And he admits it right here. He says, we don't need to do legal reviews on this. We can spend the money on anything we, we want. We can say whatever we want. Um, The law apparently doesn't matter. And... You know, his claim is basically that it's all covered by the disclaimers, right? So long as you say in the disclaimer, it doesn't matter uh, if that's in uh, four-point font. Uh, It doesn't matter. You can lie. You can say whatever you want to say in the main text. So long as in the disclaimer, you say where the money is actually going. Question. Quote, did you ever speak with anyone? Gary Coby, Mr. Kushner, did you ever speak with anyone about concerns of raising all the money for Save America while the fundraising emails said they were going to election defense funds. Answer, I'm not sure I... I don't really accept the premise of your question, because the disclaimers in those emails said where all the money was going. End quote. And they keep going on in this vein, and Clark is saying, I'm not responsible. And it's interesting, you have all of these different people, no one is responsible for anything the Trump campaign did even if they were hired as an attorney. Uh, quote, the only thing I had any kind of input into was a disclaimer on the bottom. I didn't have any input or control over content. End quote. So, again, uh, then that's, you know, that that's not a FEC problem, right? That's, that's a Justin Clark problem. You don't get to do an end run around election uh, law by compartmentalizing so that everyone has one tiny area of responsibility. You're a lawyer. You run a firm that specializes in federal compliance, and you're writing the disclaimers, but you're saying you're just responsible for the disclaimers in isolation. You have no responsibility or accountability for what's made in the main text. Um, And that I don't think, I'm not an attorney, but, you know, that's something I think could be challenged in court. Right? You know, not just us talking about it, but actually in a court, you know, if you want to judge on this then, you know, get actual judges. So that's something to keep in mind as you read these transcripts. Oftentimes, uh, particularly these longer interviews, it appears that they are saving the uh, questions upon which the person who is uh, the witness may have some uh, criminal exposure. Um, They're saving those for the end. Uh And you can just read it in the tone that um at this point in the interview, it's been like you know five and a half six uh, six and a half hours, and Clark is fatigued, and um moreover uh he's forgetful uh and uh, at some point he does seem to be more than a little combative um that you know he's he's aware that he's messed up a bit. And uh, he doesn't know how to handle this. Even though his attorney uh, knew that some of these questions were coming, I don't think that either uh, Mr. Garber or Mr. Clark really fully understand the kind of Steve Bannon, we build the wall campaign issues. I think Clark does have an understanding. You know, his belief is you can say whatever you want in a fundraising email, and spend it on whatever you want, so long as the disclaimer says what you're actually spending it on. And I do not believe that that is something that will hold up in court. He's got Donald Trump's own words, Donald Trump's signature, and then at the bottom in the disclaimer, he's got something entirely different than what's in the main text. That sounds an awful lot like something that might be Criminally exposing to everyone who took part in the approval process, including the guy who says his only job was to write the legal disclaimer at the end. All right, so the final question that is handled again at this very long interview um, regards a, a se- an email exchange uh, on november december twenty fourth excuse me with a, a series of attorneys. Now there are some outside attorneys who want to get paid. And Clark is telling them, it's over. Um, There's no point in going any further. Uh, There's no more legal process. Again, Christmas Eve, uh, we're kind of done. And moreover, um, I'm not going to pay you anymore. Because, of course, he understands how the Trump uh, operation works, right? You know, he's not going to be paying people. He's making sure he gets paid, but he doesn't want to pay these people. And there's a question uh, with regard to this line from Clark in the exchange. Quote, if you guys win this thing, there will be plenty of money to go around. But I want to make sure that I articulate the financial risks on your on your end. End quote. In other words. So basically he's saying if you guys want to keep challenging, and again, we're we're past the supposedly meaningless safe harbor date, right? And he's saying if you guys want to challenge this, that's fine, but we're not going to pay you for it. And Clark says this, quote, basically what I meant by that is we're not going to be paying you, okay? I was trying to relay to them that, hey, if you guys win, everything is going to be great. Boxing them in again. (laughs) Because their odds of success were zero at this point. Like, zero. And so I was just boxing them in in that, hey, look, if you guys want to take on this risk of litigation, we'll be able to pay you. Afterwards, for the work you did, but I'm not guaranteeing you'll be paid for stuff right now. In quote. And by the way, it would be interesting to compare. And this is something that um, it's implicit, but the, the investigators don't make explicit as why I think they've, they've gone into this line of inquiry. On the one hand, you've got Justin Clark saying to the actual attorneys who are doing this election defense litigation that you guys aren't going to win. We're we're past the safe harbor deadline. He doesn't use those terms because. For some reason, he thinks the safe harbor is meaningless. Um, you know, you guys aren't going to win, but wh- what's the fundraising doing? What are they doing at this point? They're still f- fundraising off the idea of a d- election defense fund that doesn't actually exist. And he's signing off on it and writing the disclaimers on the bottom and thinks it's okay. Answer. Quote, I didn't have the authority to tell them to stop doing what they were doing. Question. Who had the authority to tell someone to stop doing what they were doing? Answer, probably Mr. Giuliani and or the President. I mean, I'm not sure who else anybody would have spoken to about it, but definitely Mr. Giuliani was involved. Okay, did you raise any concerns or share anything with either Mr. Giuliani or the President about your assessment of these legal and political efforts? And again, this is important. This is an election Compliance and litigation specialist. This is someone who runs campaigns and handles election related litigation. And, um, you know, there's the issue of whether or not these defendants, if there's actually legal action taken against Giuliani or Trump, you know, would have an advice of counsel defense. And say, well, my lawyer told me to do this. And what does Justin Clark say? Answer I don't think I spoke to either of them about that. I mean, like I said, it was Christmas Eve. So I think I put that email down and probably didn't discuss it again until a few days later, if at all. And I don't think I raised it with either of them. I wasn't really talking to the President a lot at that point, and I certainly wasn't talking to Mr. Giuliani. End quote. That's on page 199. So he wants to have it all ways, Right. He wants to say, I can't talk about this because it's a privileged conversation. Uh, he wants to say, I was offering legal advice to everybody. But when it comes down to specifics, he wants to say, "I no one was listening to me. I didn't have any authority in the chain of command. Yes, it's true, I was writing the disclosures. But on the other hand, um, I wasn't offering any legal advice. There's all these communications are privileged. And he's also opening himself up in so many different ways. So if Donald Trump wants to say, I was listening to my lawyer, Justin Clark, and my lawyer, Justin Clark, didn't tell me anything was wrong, he has just opened up wide to that. He has just said, it's my fault. This is me, um, you know, and he's, he's not accepting responsibility for it. But in effect, he's made himself vulnerable for Trump to pin the whole thing on him. So, in some sense, he's a lot smarter than a lot of the other witnesses. But in some senses, uh, he does some very, very uh, ill-advised things. And he completely misunderstands the fact that the big lie didn't just culminate the big rip-off, but it was also a key part of motivating the mob on January 6th itself. And that, in fact, what you say in these fundraising emails is actually consequential. You shouldn't be able to lie for weeks and months on end and use it for fundraising and use it to be able to say whatever you want and then wind up with a mob attacking a co equal branch of government. Alright, so that's it for this episode. What I will be doing uh, in the probably weeks and months ahead uh, will be to review transcripts. I do have some people helping me on this. Thank you for your service. And uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the order that I'm looking at them in are in um, sort of uh, declining orders, of, or ascending orders of seriousness. Well, the other way around. So I'm actually looking at the ones where I think that the, the witnesses were uh, involved in things that could open them up to uh, possible charges. Things like the big ripoff. Things like the obstruction efforts. Things like the corrupt effort to... Uh, contact state and local officials to try to overturn election results and then the fraudulent effort to have fake uh, election certificates certificates brought uh, and certified and uh, submitted to the National Archives as though they were real. So once again, thank you so much. If I'm recording uh, less frequently nowadays, that is in part because I am just doing a tremendous amount of reading, but um, this one uh, It's just a nexus of so many different things, and uh, the press hasn't talked about Mr. Clark very much that I thought it would be useful to bring to your attention.